Support for today's show comes from Squarespace because, hey, you, get a website. Get on it. Get yourself online out there with a shingle that says, I'm me. It is almost 2019, which is a crazy futuristic year to even be saying, you know, but you'll have a website in it that looks great, works on mobile and is everything you want it to be if you use Squarespace. So head to squarespace.com slash cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam. I'm also known as Schmitty the Champ, and I am also, also filled with joy by this week's very fun, very pop culture episode of the show. Our topic is pop culture alternate histories that almost happened. One more time, that's pop culture alternate histories that almost happened. We will explain what that is right away in the show. And by we, I mean myself and our returning guest, the one and only Matt Gorley. If you like comedy podcasting, you've heard Matt Gorley do it. He's, he's just everywhere. He is so fundamental to it. His voice is the one you hear on the Earwolf Network bumper at the end of all the episodes. That's just a fun thing. Now you know that. One podcast in particular to mention, because uh, it comes up fast here, the show James Bonding, hosted by the Mats, Myra, and Gorley. I love that show, and we talk a lot about Bond up top this week, and, and it's because Matt Gorley's like the perfect guy to do it with. I love Bond, so does he. It's a great time. And I think that's all you need to know going in, so, uh, so let's get you in. Please sit back, or sit in rapt attention as we discover how Marvel movies might never have happened, or might have happened in a bigger and weirder and cruisier way. Either way, here's this episode of the Cracked Podcast with being of pure delight, Matt Gorley. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. We are talking pop culture alternate history today. And uh, Matt, I'm so excited to be talking to you about it. I'm so excited to be back. I'm so excited to be talking about the what if of this whole thing. Because you could do that with real history, and I know scholars have, but it's more important to take a look at pop culture and say, <laughs> what could have been or what should have been. There, there's a lot of things we could look at. I, I always like talking to you about James Bond. Oh, me um, too. I mean, we've got wars like Infinity Wars and Star Wars, but you know James Bond is my sweet spot, so I'm happy <laughs> to do it anytime. Yeah. It's such a long franchise. There's so many ways it could go. Uh, there's one thing, as, as we're like putting this together, I learned that in the 1950s, 50s, somebody named Gregory Radoff optioned the books, and this was pre-Broccoli. So uh, just one thing that could have happened is we could have had different people making the whole franchise. This is crazy. I, I always, you know, Matt, Myra and I from the James Bonding podcast say we're lovers, not experts. I had never heard this. Oh, wow. Especially yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what you will probably reveal next about what they wanted to do with it. Yeah, because I, well, I, for one thing, I don't know if everybody knows listening that the Bond franchise is still kind of a Broccoli family business. Like, if yeah. different people option it, we have a completely different 20 something movies. Mm -hmm. The whole thing's different. But Radoff, and then he had brought in writer Lorenzo Semple Jr., who's best known for writing on the old Batman TV show right. and writing uh, a lot of good, like, paranoia 70s movies, like Parallax View and Three Days of the Condor. But both of them didn't like James Bond in the books. They thought he was kind of a pig. Yeah. And so they wanted to make it a female spy right away. <laughs> right. And what cracks me up is they're like, oh, this this Bond is quite a pig. But then there's that 
comment by Radoff from the article about he said something to the effect of, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but not far, that, oh, well, let's get Suzanne Hayward for the role. Yeah. Because when she was a $75 a week actress, I fucked her and she owes me, which is one of obviously the most grossly <laughs> misogynistic things. But the, the worst part about that is not just that he probably preyed on her, but that she somehow owes him right. for being right. taken advantage. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sorry, James Bond's a pig? <laughs> wow. Yeah, that, oh man, like... Old Hollywood. What a what a world in a yeah. in a terrible way. But right, and, and that uh, yeah, they were looking at. I, did, I didn't know a lot about that actress, but Susan Hayward apparently would go on to be nominated for five Oscars and win one, and had been nominated at least a couple times in the mid fifties when they were looking at her to be Jane Bond. Because she owed him some. Yeah. Oh, that, the other part is that he, he doesn't even call her Susan Hayward. He calls her Susie. Susie Hayward. <laughs> oh, man. It's just all of that together. Oh, yeah. That, that part I didn't totally scan because there's that thing where, like, a celebrity is being interviewed and they start talking about another celebrity. And then they have some nickname for, like, Robbie De Niro. And I'm like, oh, I guess he's called Robbie by yeah. people. Oh, okay, sure. That's what <laughs> I love that device comedically. Like, Paul Schaefer used to do that on Letterman all the time where he'd, like, talk about, like, Martin Balsam and go, yeah, me and Marty Balsam. <laughs> Bobby De Niro. Right. Yeah. I always want it to be like M-Dog Scorsese. And, uh, <laughs> like, it's like just some ridiculous. But yeah, I, the entire world of Bond and probably the rest of, I don't know, action movies, British culture, Western history, the world. It could have been a female 1950s James Bond instead of us getting Sean Connery in, in the early 60s. Yeah, and it's so interesting to think what that would have been at the time and also to think about all the people, you know, because the topic comes up a lot these days with uh, Daniel Craig retiring after this next movie that would would we, could we have a female Bond? And there's still so much resistance. But look, now there's precedent for the, at least the um, possibility. yeah. I feel like maybe you'd know better than me because you, you've been doing James Bonding and you've got uh, your man in the East, Phil Noble. And, yeah. and uh, how are we definitely set on Craig retires after this coming movie? I think it's all but certain. Yeah. 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 Because even the end of Spectre, when he literally drives off into the sunset, I was like, oh, he's probably done, right? But I guess he has one more in him and then yeah. probably that's yeah. it. But maybe, yeah, maybe a lady, maybe somebody else. And, mm -hmm. and I wonder, too, if, if it had been – Oh, a female Bond, that would be so diverse. But if you do it in the 50s, like, maybe it's not cool. You know what I mean? Like, I know. <laughs> like, would she be facing – how much would they, A, lean into the fact that she's a woman and she has to work in a man's world? And then how much would they not even be aware that, that that's what they were doing in the first place? So would they right. even play into that as an element as opposed to just being in it as a world? <laughs> right. But this whole thing gets to one of my favorite things in, in – life and possibly death, fingers crossed, I've said this before, but <laughs> my version of heaven is okay. you walk into a room that's like all, let's say, 4K Blu-ray or even higher def, but physical media. And it is every version of every movie that could have possibly been made. You know what I mean? Like the different versions of these Bond films, a lot of the things that we're going to talk about that you could see, like when David Lynch was going to direct Return of the Jedi, I would die to see that version, you know? I heard that Spielberg might have directed Jedi. Yeah, I that know too. Lynch was in there too. Yeah, Lynch was under serious consideration. And then I th I can't remember if it was a union thing or because uh, Lucas was looking for someone not in the union. And that's why he went with Marquand. 
No, I do remember this. There's some story where he, Lucas was sort of kicked out of the union because there was some kind of director's guild rule where a movie needed to have standard opening credits with yeah. names and stuff. Uh-huh, right. And instead he did the most famous opening of all time with right. the scrolling Star yeah, Wars text. And we're not going to give him a break on that. <laughs> and, and so they kicked him out and he was like, well, then fine, I can't use Steven Spielberg or David Lynch. Basically, or and they find Irvin Kirshner. This was around Empire time. And so Lucas paid Kirshner's fines for him. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a whole other thing where we could have had a different third Star Wars movie I if know. the Director's Guild people weren't just weird dicks. Like, Spielberg's, <laughs> Spielberg's Jedi would have probably been amazing because he was just in his prime in 83. Yeah. Oh, that would have been incredible. Please let that be heaven. I like that your heaven has physical media, did you yeah, say? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like there's the cloud storage is literal physical storage in the clouds. <laughs> there's also a thing that I found out about George Lazenby. Yeah. Because he was going to be, well, he, he was the next James mm-hmm. Bond, but he was also like the first post-Connery person, even though Connery would return. And apparently writer Richard Maybaum uh, told the magazine Starlog magazine Mm. that they almost wrote on Her Majesty's Secret Service to explain why James Bond was a different looking guy Mm because it was a different actor. And they were going to do some kind of thing where Sean Connery's Bond got a bunch of plastic surgery because too many people could recognize him. Yeah. I mean, on paper, I get where they're going with that. Yeah. It doesn't quite work for the tone of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. It's interesting they use that in the next film, which got a lot campier, where Blofeld was doing plastic surgery to change his, well, not even to change his appearance, but to make people look like him so he could have decoys. That's right. Yeah. Because that's Diamonds Are Forever when Uh Willard White is a a red herring or something. Yeah, Yeah. played by Jimmy Dean, the Sausage (laughs) King. I forget. Yeah. (laughs) That alone, because John Gavin was signed to do Bond for Diamonds Are Forever until Connery 11th Hour came back and Cubby Broccoli paid Gavin out. He gave him his yeah, whole who, fee. John Gavin. I've never heard of him. He's he's in Psycho. He's like a guy in Psycho, and then he yes. was going to be the third James Bond actor. Exactly. Wow. Well, that alone is a whole what if, because James Brolin was tapped to do, I forget what oh, his was going to be, and Sam Neill was up for Octopussy if Roger Moore was stepping out. Yeah, I, th- I think Brolin was also like a Moore replacement yeah. at one point. And, al- and also American, right? Which would be yes. the whole thing. Same with Burt Reynolds for, uh, I believe, was tossed around pretty seriously around Diamonds Are Forever Time, too. Oh, man. I know. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like also mm-hmm. with, with all these Hollywood things, there are stories of almost castings with a lot of things. And I feel like Burt Reynolds is almost all of them. Yeah. It's just almost every Terms role. of Endearment one. Have you heard oh, of that? I don't know that. He was, um, he was given the role of Jack Nicholson's character in Terms of Endearment, which Nicholson, I believe, won an Oscar for. Yeah, I think so. And he turned, Reynolds turned it down to do Stroker <laughs> Ace because he was so into Lonnie Anderson and they were going to work together. And I think he... <laughs> A, as a looking back retrospectively on his relationship and career went, why did I do either of those things, you know? (laughs) (laughs) There was some time when he did one business phone call where he made multiple mistakes all at once. Yeah, Yeah. I think that whole decade. (laughs) I miss that guy. I love him. Are there any Bonds who you wish did more movies or, or had done particular different movies with people? Yeah, I would love to have seen another Dalton movie, although my understanding from reading the treatment of the next movie, it felt like what oh. Dalton's Bond was and where the movies were going were diverging fairly 
drastically. So I don't think it would have suited Dalton, but I would have loved to have seen Dalton in another Living Daylights-esque kind of straightforward Fleming type Bond. Yeah, because if people don't know Timothy Dalton, the two Bond movies late in the 80s. Yeah. And then was considered for a third one, but there were some kind of business problems with it. He was going to, but then there was a legal battle that took so long. And then then as the story goes, it was, I think, four years later when they came back and said, do you want to do it? And he said, no, I want to move on. But now I've since heard unofficially that really the Broccoli's were done with him and gave him the sort of like honorable fall on your sword kind of like, we'll let you say you don't want to do it, but they wanted to move on from him. I don't know what's true, but I would have loved to have seen another Lazenby too, but he took himself out. He just thought Bond was too square and he wanted to be all, he wanted to have a beard. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Cause they offered him Lazenby a second one. And then mm-hmm. he said, I'm cool or something. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't I'm know. cool. I don't like, really I don't want to do it. And also, <laughs> I'm cool. <laughs> and Bond isn't. That, that heaven rack of Bond movies, it would, it, it would be thousands deep. There's oh, so many. Yeah. I think I've heard rumors that uh, Tarantino has wanted to do one forever. He and, wanted and... to do a black and white Casino Royale with Brosnan. Oh, man. <laughs> also, just Cary Grant was the first first choice for the first Bond, but he wouldn't agree to do more than one, and they knew they wanted to potentially do a series. And I would love oh, wow. to see Cary Grant in a Bond movie. would love it. I guess we kind of got it with, what, North by Northwest, yeah, uh-huh. where he, he's famously running away from a plane. Yeah, essentially uh, because he does nothing but play himself in every movie. You know, <laughs> that's what it would be, but yeah. It might kind of feel how those Mission Impossible movies, I feel like it's just Tom Cruise doing stuff. Yeah. Like Cary Grant, James Bond, it would just be Cary Grant doing stuff. Like James Bond would not be a character even. No, you're right. You're (laughs) absolutely right. The guy who owned the rights, Kevin McClory, to Thunderball after the legal dispute, and that's why he was able to do that unofficial remake, Never Say Never Again, that Lorenzo Semple Jr. also wrote on and was instrumental in getting um, Connery back. He was given the rights to that story and those characters. So he, uh, I think, at some point was going to remake it yet again called Warhead 2000 around the 90s. Warhead 2000. And they considered bringing Dalton back as a sort of like, look, we're going to recycle these bonds if the original or like the um, official franchise won't. We'll take them. When I was a kid, one of the few bonds we owned was Never Say Never Again. How funny. And I later learned that, like, oh, that was sort of a whole – it came out the same year as Roger Moore was an octopus. Yeah. It's like a whole battle of the bonds uh-huh. issue. Uh, man, I, I'm glad that only happened once. That's crazy. I they almost kept doing it. Yeah. They could get Connery in for one last one. Was the title Warhead 2000 a product of – everything in the 90s needing to be named after the millennium. I think like, <laughs> very much so. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, we do we do have one other bond thing here, yes. which is also I learned that the beginning of Spectre, amazing. Just yeah. fantastic. Uh-huh. And kind of running through a massive parade for Dia de los Muertos in Mexico City. Right. And it turns out obviously the holidays a thing, but Mexico City didn't really do an event like that. Right. And they just made it up for the movie. And so the movie since then has basically invented that as an actual tradition. The movie came out in 2015, and then the past two years, Mexico City has now gone ahead and done that parade. Isn't that <laughs> incredible that that their culture has been given to them by an English production? Not their culture, but this element of what will then become a part of their cultural celebration. But that yeah. that's crazy. That's so funny. <laughs> that's like that story about... You know that like um, 
vaguely Eastern music. Yeah, yeah. That was music invented for an American World's Fair at a like Eastern exhibit to kind of like Whoa. give the feel of like this is legitimate or like accurate Eastern culture. And it was just an American invention that to this day kind of persists as like that snake charming music. Oh, crazy. Yeah. And that, that's become like our headcanon for a lot of people for, right. like, you know, the East. Yeah. Which is a crazy reductive thing to do. Yeah, but, exactly. But, uh, Probably the same with. <laughs> I know people who hate that. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and also, the parade inspector, I feel like, is pretty positive for what it is. Like, yeah. It seems like a cool party, right. you know? Yeah. Uh, and there's a Guardian article about people in Mexico City embracing this idea. And they quote a teacher named Alejandra Osorno, who they find at the parade dressed up as La Catrina, and she says, it's kind of embarrassing. How is it possible that someone outside Mexico could come up with this and it didn't occur to us? Yeah. Like, they seem stoked about this, like, good idea around a real holiday. You but know? they'll never yeah. have the same production value because you've got one of the biggest movies of all time coming in and spending. Like, when yeah. you see that parade, everybody's in impeccable costumes and the floats and everything. It's one of my big pet peeves. We should do an episode you probably already have on like things in movies that don't reflect real life. Like costumes at Halloween costumes are always too too well designed. Oh sure. Yeah. Picket signs, you know, never look <laughs> handmade. Or children's right. drawings are always drawn by a production artist, you know. And I like I believe their egos are too strong to actually do something bad. They can't allow <laughs> mediocre costumes or picket signs to permeate yeah. their production because their name is on it. But occasionally you'll see them. And and you're right. There's so much, like, every restaurant is full of cool people in the background. Yes. You know, like, yeah. just films have all these, like, this neatness. That, right. Uh, or it's a dystopia and everyone's in the same set of rags, you know? Yeah, it's, exactly. It's a weird uh, consistency. Well, so we, we mentioned Spielberg before, uh, and there's another, there's a story here. It's from uh, Five Insane Pop Culture Crossovers That Almost Happened by Ken Asaya Jr., and it's about Jaws, yes. where Jaws 3 was almost a giant joke. I absolutely <laughs> do this, right? Because one's amazing, two's kind of, you know, still kind of fun. But yeah. by the time you get to three, it's an unintentional comedy. Why not lean into it and go all out? I think more franchises should probably do this. I feel like more franchises would if Jaws had too, because Jaws was so so formative yeah. for every blockbuster movie since. Yeah, right. And this was uh, the late 70s, so a wild time. And uh, <laughs> the first Jaws made over $100 million, first movie to ever do that. The second Jaws almost did. And then Universal said, hey, Jaws 2 came out in 1978. Our other uh, big hit of the time was Animal House. Oh, right. So why don't we hire National Lampoon to make a joke comedy movie as Jaws 3? But in like, heaven, I'm watching this movie. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is top five. I want to see this so badly. Like, you've got Chevy Chase hunting a shark. <laughs> Belushi's still alive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh. oh, it's just directly SNL is doing just. Yeah. Well, I'm just thinking, like, the National Lampoons, because they both worked with them. Sure, and at, yeah. At the time, this is probably who they would have tapped coming yeah. hot off Saturday Night Live. One of those people would have been in there, certainly. Because well, in real life, they had John Hughes write a script. And he wrote it. It was titled Jaws 3, People Nothing. Like it's a sports score, <laughs> which is the best. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's telling you what it's going to be. Does that script exist? 
I couldn't find it. Oh my I w- god! I, and with with a lot of these, they're not findable. And then yeah. other other movies that I don't want to read, they are. You know. But they, he wrote it, and then they got Joe Dante lined up to direct it, which would have been great. He did Gremlins yeah. and a lot of other, like, funny, also high-production movies. And they had Richard Dreyfus lined up to come back. And, oh, my and, God. And, like, be in the comedy version of wow. the previous movies. I would have loved that. I mean, what franchise did that? I, Friday the 13th kind of did. By the time you get to part six, they're leaning into the fact that it is kind of not only a comedy, but in some ways a wacky comedy. I have only seen the first one. Okay, and, yeah. and you you obviously know them better. Yeah, uh, they yeah. by part six it is, in some ways parroting other things like in the opening Jason walks by and the pupil of an eye turns slashes at the camera and it's a direct Bond gun barrel reference. Oh wow, it's weird. I know I don't know why. <laughs> and then there's some That's straight silly. up whack up farcical comedy in it. I would imagine Jaws three would have made money oh. this way. Like I, instead they did, I believe Jaws three D, yes, which was just the right. gimmick as it's three D. Yeah, with Dennis Quaid and it was set at like a marine animal park in Florida or something. Oh okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because with with Jaws or Friday the Thirteenth or any other movie where the premise is this is one murderous thing and everyone's fleeing. Yeah, like it just. You just kind of got to make it a comedy eventually, right? Exactly. Because it becomes yeah. silly that people are returning to these places where right. a bunch of people died. Yeah. So it only didn't happen because Steven Spielberg heard that this was going on and went to Universal and said, I will never work with you again if you do this with this this franchise that I, I worked on so hard to make serious. But go and ahead so and exploit it in 3D all you want. Right, that's the thing. I, I yeah. don't know why he didn't throw himself in front of Jaws 3D or I forget the name of Jaws 4, but it was something. The Revenge. Silly. The Revenge. This that time it's it. personal. Because I have seen it. I've, I think I've, I've only seen, seen that one. I've only seen one and four. I really pick my spots. Oh, wow. Uh, I like to. <laughs> I like to. It's like the junk food version of one, but very tasty. Like, yeah. It just moves a little quicker and stuff. You know, Not that I don't love one, but... And that's a super valid way to do uh, movie number two. Yeah. Is, is here's exactly what you liked. Like, yeah. great, sure, fine. Right, it's kind of like Temple of Doom to um, Raiders. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I kind of wish I lived in a world where the sort of Jaws rule of thumb is third movie, you go crazy. Yeah. Like, Taken 3 would be a comedy, and, and oh, I don't know what exactly. else. Exactly, like, yeah. if, reward yourself if you made it that far. Yeah, it's, like, exciting to me, too, that capitalism exists. Uh, <laughs> because all of these franchises, there are enough people who want to just make a next one to make money Yeah, that either because they also love it or just because they want to make money, they'll try some really wild stuff. Like like yeah. any any long running franchise like Indiana Jones, there are probably scripts floating around for just oh yeah uh, he fights a sea monster right or he's Elvis or I don't you know they're just crazy yeah. things. It's interesting to put it that way. That is what capitalism is, and it's like if you had the communist version or like the socialist <laughs> or even if you take like England's national broadcasting, like their endowment for the arts. That's why you oh, get yeah. six episodes in a series and maybe you get another, never get another series because they're about the content and the quality. <laughs> yeah. Because it's not just profit-based, but here it's money rules. We got to keep it going. Yeah. Right, right. Like we'll just uh, crank stuff out. And right. then you get all of Roger Corman or, or yes. you know, something yeah. like that. <laughs> Speaking of money, let's look at Marvel. Yeah. What a thing that makes a lot of money. Yeah. How do you feel about Marvel movies? That We have so many of them. Yeah, so. I'm. Um, I really liked them in the beginning. I I can't get through them now, and I know that's probably no surprise to some people. But some people also can't believe, like, how can you not love it? I know so many people that love those movies. I am so bored to tears by them at this point. They're just the same. Yeah. 
And this is coming from someone who abides every Star Wars mistake and James Bonding dud. <laughs> I just I find myself thoroughly bored by them, I guess. I uh, which is a shame and I I still go back into them thinking like this one will be different. I'll I'll never learn. I wonder if it's partly because there have been so many of them so fast. Yeah. But I believe it's 20 movies in 10 years, which is a lot. Like That's if you lot. space them out more, maybe it's yeah. more fun. You know? I guess there's some of the outliers that I enjoyed. Like I, I did enjoy Doctor Strange because just visually it looked different to me, even like it was darker. and Yeah. And I liked Black Panther, but even that one, by the time I got to the end, it's just like we're doing the same thing. There's just this epic CG battle at the end and – Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like a bunch of flying aliens, usually. Yeah, and I just tune out. They're just, nothing feels grounded, I guess. But I remember loving Iron Man, and I know that's what we're going to talk about. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, because there's, it's sort of a remarkable set of movies. There's one one cracked article called Five Reasons the Marvel Cinematic Universe Should Have Failed uh, by Daniel Dockery because nothing before or since has been similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, even even with James Bond, there's a lot of space between the movies. Yeah. And uh, uh, Star Wars, there's been you know a decade often between movies. Right. And far fewer. Marvel, they've made so many of them, and it was all basically sparked by that first Iron Man movie that almost starred Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. <laughs> I mean, it's not crazy when you look at it, because look what he went on to do with um, Mission Impossible. So there's every reason to believe that he would have not only kept going on in that role, but taking a major hand in it. But yeah. then I wonder how that would have jibed with Kevin Feige and the Marvel Universe because it seems like they really pull the strings on that. Yeah, oh, it would have been an enormous fight, wouldn't it? Or would it have yeah. evolved differently where like Cruz would have become a major producer of all of them? Oh, yeah. I wonder. I don't know. That's a good question, yeah. I've heard that he loves consuming stuff. Like he'll just constantly be watching movies, constantly be reading stuff that could be adapted into a movie. I feel like he'd have the appetite to read all of Marvel comics, Probably. which you kind of need to do to make to yeah. make all the movies. Like yeah. maybe he steers the whole thing and it works. That'd yeah. be amazing. Well, it seems like he was ready to go down that path with the Mummy that he would have probably done that wow. whole fr- franchise had it not have tanked because they forgot they had did that. Russell Crowe lined up as Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah, it was they were gonna do it was called the Dark Universe because yeah. I guess Universal Studios owns a bunch of old monsters, mm-hmm. and so they were gonna do <laughs> owns a bunch of. Old <laughs> we keep them in this room. <laughs> Here's the keys. You're welcome to pal around in there. Just sign anything out. <laughs> the wolf man keeps wanting to like go outside, and they're like, "No, you can't. You can't go outside." I'm sorry. Because <laughs> they made all these like 20s, 30s, 40s monster yeah. movies, they still have the rights, and so they were gonna say, "Oh, we'll do a Marvel Cinematic." universe where it's just all these monsters hang out or something like they all know each other i guess uh, i hope that's what it was like mad monster party <laughs> just road movies where like the wolfman and the mummy are driving somewhere yeah. now i'm in suddenly i'm interested <laughs> but uh, yeah it is a thing that they they really were going to lean into and and yeah, you're right like tom cruise was willing to sign up for that so maybe he kind of would have been willing to be Iron Man, but he would have needed to be in nine movies across 10 years now if it's the same trajectory. But uh, I feel like yeah. he's such a glutton for positive attention that what those movies were bringing towards Downey Jr.'s career would have done the same for him. It would have come at the time when he would have really needed it after that. Wasn't that around That's the time true. of his kind of real fall from grace in terms of the Scientology thing and the Katie Holmes and the couch jumping, he probably would have, like, really thrived in that. I feel like he's the one celebrity I can think of where he had a huge 
long public relations issue and has remained popular without ever like fixing it. Yeah, he, you know what I mean? He like people still don't storm. like him. They just want to see him in movies all the time. Yeah, you know? and it's even weird. it feels like the liking has abated. Like it's just okay, he's back to our boy. He's a little weird. Yeah. <laughs> but we don't live in the same world or class that he does, so we can't understand. We we forgive him his like weird peccadillos or something. I don't know, cuz as long as he keeps bringing us these Mission Impossible movies that everybody seems to enjoy. I, I like him a lot, actually. Yeah, me yeah. too. I do too. And and the later, the better. Like these last three, I think, are so good. They're like right, yeah. well-done Roger Moore Bond movies. You know, They're really fun and thrilling. And Yeah, yeah I, w- I was telling somebody the other day, they are like my, they just hold me over until there's more Bond. Yeah. And it really works. Yeah, like, I agree. Um, like, oh, I can snack on a, a uh-huh. Mission Impossible Fallout. I know. And in some ways, <laughs> they're more fun because as Bond has played it pretty serious lately, it has been nice to see the lighthearted part of the Mission Impossible movies. I, I tend to like it that way. I, I, I hope that keeps to the Mission Impossible franchise, and I kind of hope Daniel Craig stays in the lane of a little more serious, which I, I think yeah, is going to be the case me. with the director, Cary Fukunaga. Oh, there's another what if, the Danny Boyle you know, right. version of w- this new one too. God. Yeah, we came so close. Yeah. Because also he, I mean, he dropped out, what, a little over a year before it was supposed to be released, which in Bond terms is like the day before. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, Although for a big franchise, they are notoriously known for pulling together an entire movie in a space of a year, even these new ones. It's crazy. Yeah, I think I heard they did that with Quantum of Solace because of a writer's strike. Yeah, but even Casino Royale and Skyfall had big production problems. But once they start shooting... They don't do a ton of post-production because they do a fair amount practically, but you yeah, know, they really get rolling. And with Marvel, a lot is effects. That, that's another thing, too. I feel like Tom Cruise loves doing stunts, and if he yeah. was Iron Man, oh, he'd yeah. no stunts. You're right. Yeah, <laughs> He'd be so sad. Unless we'd have uh, a different Iron Man, that'd be pretty cool. Now it would just be him doing a bunch of stunts out of the suit, and then the suit does all the basic like meetings and yeah. safe stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Prior to even making Iron Man, uh, Marvel Comics, I think not everybody knows, the company like almost went broke a couple times. Right. And in the 90s, they had sold off the X-Men rights to Fox and sold off the Fantastic Four rights, but they owned movie rights for all of the rest of their characters. And in 1998, Marvel went to Sony and said, would you like to buy all of these rights to everything for $25 million for the salary of like one top baseball player now, one year? Uh, would you like all of our movies forever? <laughs> and they said no. And and Sony said no. They were like, we will just buy Spider-Man because we believe in that, which was correct. Yeah. Uh, but they were like, ah, the rest, we can't see there being any money in that. I see why they sold X-Men. It seemed like Fox, 20th Century Fox had a vision for that. But yeah. Fantastic Four has never had its day in the sun. And at that point, they probably <laughs> just went out on the street and just flagged someone down and went, Look, I'm selling Fantastic Four real cheap. You want it? Sure. Yeah, I'll take it. Hi, my name's Roger Corman. We don't care. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, usually I do piranha movies, right? Yeah, sure, fine. Whatever. <laughs> Great. It's, yeah. Great. <laughs> Fisher fun. Uh, yeah, because I think 98 was also before any X-Men movies had come out. Yeah. So there right. wasn't any track record of these working. No. And so they were like, hey, bottom dollar, you can just take it. Yeah. God. Wow. They made their money on Spider-Man. And then- they never sold anything until they started making their own? They sold Spider-Man then, and they had yeah. previously sold X-Men and Fantastic Four, and then they just held on to 
everything else and decided later, uh, okay, well, we'll just start making our own. And I, they did Hulk initially was That's their right. first like on their own. Oh, right. The uh, Ang Lee one? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Which did okay and apparently made a little money. And then uh, from there, they started making these MCU movies and have since made over $17.5 billion worldwide, uh, which is about 700 times the amount of money that Sony could have just bought everything for and wow. started making. <laughs> but arguably, I wonder if they would have made them as well. I mean, because those early Marvel movies were really good. I really liked yeah, Iron yeah. Man and, and the first Avengers. What were some of the I other? Like a, I like the first Thor a whole lot. Yeah, uh, I like that too. Way into it, yeah. yeah. And then, well, they did the um, Louis Leterrier Hulk with Edward Norton. Was that them? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they also made that, and that's kind of like sort of separate. They yeah. just sort of rebooted yeah. Hulk and the Avengers, but uh, yeah. Will he ever get his proper Marvel Comics Universe movie? I like him on the side of stuff, uh-huh. like even the third Thor where he's kind of the other main character. Yeah. It's just fun. Uh, yeah. I, I kind of don't need him to be on his own. I don't know why. Maybe I'm a bad Hulk fan. I don't uh, know. Write to me about why. <laughs> Maybe you're protecting the Hulk. You know? <laughs> no one else does. They let him get mad. Let's help. What uh, would be interesting is if the DC properties were given capable directors and, and studio, you know. I mean, I know Batman was well handled, but since then they've really tanked those guys. Yeah, I feel like, and I feel like maybe the Nolan Batman's made them cocky a little bit. Yeah. They were like, "Well, we're still doing higher quality than Marvel," yeah. and then meanwhile, Marvel just rolled out the biggest franchise ever. Yes, I know. <laughs> With any of these two, it's like, oh, maybe a different company gets it. But also, in uh, in Daniel Dockery's article, he talks about how even if Sony had bought all those Marvel movies, the people running Sony at the time still thought Spider-Man was the only good character mm. that they had. Yeah. So if they owned them, they probably would have just kept making Spider-Mans and then occasionally Captain America cameos or is in the background or something. Yeah. You know, like they might not have gone ahead and made an Iron Man movie because also people forget Iron Man was not a top character no. until, until movies. And it's easy to forget too that like the thought of doing a Captain America movie, I even remember when they made Iron Man and then they're considering, oh, we may go through these Avengers and stuff. And I'm like, Captain America, how are you ever going to pull that off? Because he was just <laughs> the schmaltzy World War II, you know, hero that existed because of that generation and that time. And how are you going to make this kind of like goody goody an interesting character? <laughs> and I'll be damned they did it, you know? I hadn't thought of him that way. He's sort of like Superman, where yeah. to our modern sensibility, it's like, what a corny uh, goofball. I know. And they're like Captain America. Just the name is so ridiculous. <laughs> but they really updated well. I think the real reason they were able to was to start it in the 40s and then blast him forward made a lot of sense. It really helped. Totally, yeah. Yeah. Will footnote, uh, uh, there's an interview that Zack Snyder did where he said he, in the middle of making uh, Man of Steel, admitted, like, I, I don't totally know what to do with a character like Superman. He's kind of kind of yeah. goofy and corny. And Captain America was clearly given to people who did not feel that way about him. Like That probably makes all the difference. Yeah, or that they leaned into it. Like, I feel like Man yeah. of Steel is trying to hide from that and um, kind of play against it, and it doesn't work. You've got – Superman does have to be kind of – and innocent and a goody goody, and that's his charm. And yeah, be curious to see if they'll ever be able to do that well again since the Christopher Reeve one. With all these superheroes, are we starting to kind of get that heaven film section that we talked about? Because they like all it. have such specific yeah. origins and specific powers that 
people are all kind of making the same uh, movie. Like everybody yeah. making a Batman movie is doing a new take on a Batman movie. Yeah. And eventually yeah. we'll kind of have everybody's take, right? Right. I think so. Yeah. Get in there, David Lynch. <laughs> We would like to thank Squarespace for their support of this show, this episode, and everything we're doing here at the Cracked Podcast. And they're uh, they're very, very wise people. I say this often, but uh, the, the brain trust over there at the website building at Squarespace, they're like, hey, Cracked listeners are very interesting people. They have something they want to do. They have something they want to create and grow and build online with a website. They just haven't done it yet because they haven't partnered with the right people to do it. Squarespace can be those right people. They have beautiful templates created by world-class designers, the ability to customize just about anything with a few clicks, and you can easily make a beautiful website yourself by clicking, dragging, and deciding instead of digging around in a bunch of code. That site will be optimized for mobile right out of the box. There's also nothing to patch or upgrade ever. And buying domains is very, very simple. You'll get the help you need to get the domain you want with Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support team. From domain to website setup to being online the way you want to be. So head to squarespace.com cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com cracked. Offer code cracked. Let HelloFresh take the guesswork out of meals week after week with three plans to choose from classic, veggie, and family. HelloFresh's meal kits make dinner easy. No more having to plan dinner, spend money on takeout, or worry about gathering ingredients week after week. You can get that time back to do more of what you love because HelloFresh's easy-to-follow recipes and pre-measured, responsibly obtained ingredients are all delivered right to your door in recyclable, insulated packaging. All for less than $10 per serving. Less than $10 with free shipping. And don't worry, you won't spend all night in the kitchen because recipes only take about 30 minutes. It's so easy to manage. You can choose your delivery date to match your ever-changing schedule and even pause deliveries for when you're on vacation. Let me tell you something. What do you know about zucchini flatbread? Because it turns out I know a lot now. I've used balsamic onions. I didn't even think I could do that, but it was easy and simple and a very delicious like veggie snack that was really more of an entire meal that I was able to make with HelloFresh. I surprised myself and I did it by sitting in my apartment waiting for a box to get there, which is my favorite way to surprise myself. So why don't you surprise yourself with ease the way I do? For a total of $60 off, that's $20 off your first three boxes. Visit HelloFresh.com slash Cracked60 and enter code Cracked60. That is a six and a zero, not spelling it all out. It's like receiving six meals free when you go to HelloFresh.com slash Cracked60 and enter code Cracked60. This is another thing that could have had a very different tone because of what people wanted. The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Oh, what a what a movie people know. Right. Um, <laughs> what a movie people know. <laughs> that's, that's how we're getting into it. And uh, there's a, a thing where a lot of different people tried to write that movie, the one we know. Oh. And Mervyn Leroy and William Cannon wanted to do one that was gritty. They really? were like, oh, the, the wow. Wizard of Oz is too silly, and we want to do one where there's no magical components. Because we feel that magic is too silly, and so we'll do that. But was she still transferred from Kansas to Oz? Yeah, so there'd be some, it's unclear, there'd be some way where Oz is another place that she gets sent to. But then... Oh, like a physical place in the real world? Yeah, some kind of thing like that. Oh, wow. And then all the people she deals with, like, 
the tin man is not just a magical man made of tin. It's like a person who has been condemned to be trapped in a, a tin suit like a prisoner forever. Oh my uh, God, I would and, love to see this. Yeah, and, and the scarecrow is like a mentally challenged person. It's some more literal version of no brain instead of a fun scarecrow who's made of straw, you know. It sounds hideous. It would have been really bad. Oh, I agree. <laughs> I could see where they like that. And interesting. You know, Heavy-handed yeah. artsiness of that time. It would have kind of almost maybe had this like, Twilight Zone moral message or something like oh some probably thematic feeling that I would still love to see. Sometimes I forget my version of heaven isn't guaranteed to me, and it really <laughs> makes me sad. But I, I am a believer in that oh, all no. information all always exists in some way in history, whether it's technology or whatever. There's a going to be a way to get it back. Like we're already seeing that with YouTube. I never thought I'd see these commercials from my childhood again. And I know that's like a minor oh, that's way, thrilling. but I think yeah, just the atoms will someday be put back together. And I know this movie was never made, but maybe that script survives and maybe it could be made in the style of the time through some AI or something thousands of years in the future. And I just, yeah, I would just love that kind of thing. Wouldn't you love to be able to sit down and watch that movie knowing that the Oz we have exists, the Wizard of Oz, but to watch that version of it as like almost like in an academic way. I already don't leave the house, but then I would never leave the house. <laughs> yeah. Well, also with that one, with some of the modern things, I think, oh, we have the internet to store stuff, so we should have all this stuff, right? Yeah. And then with older stuff, I think it was so paper-driven. Oh, yeah. Like, you got to hope there's some room at MGM where they left a, it laying around, the script, right. you know? Yeah, because it's never probably been digitized in any way. Yeah. Oh. But then it maybe it survived in some file cabinets. It's like the, like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark yeah. when they put it in that warehouse, uh -huh. you know? Like, I want that warehouse full oh. of terrifying Wizard of Oz scripts. <laughs> Can you imagine, too? Oh, that would be amazing. And also with things that could have been grittier, jumping into the present cracked article, five family movies and TV shows that were almost insanely dark by Cesare Jan Struzowitz. Uh, he picked out the TV show Scrubs. How, how do you feel about Scrubs? Have I, you seen much of it? That was on in a period of my life where I barely watched any TV, so I've seen an episode or two, yeah. but I really don't remember much of it. Yeah, it's very light. And it's a lot of like uh, sort of fantasy sequences and imagined stuff. And Bill Lawrence, who made the show, he claimed that if they were ever on the verge of getting canceled, he was going to do a huge left turn into all of the fantasy sequences on the show are because the main character, JD, has a, a massive brain tumor. And so it's causing him to hallucinate a bunch of stuff. I the janitor it. is a hallucination, doesn't exist. And they never even had to consider doing it because it was a smash hit show from the beginning. Oh, uh, I wish they would have pulled that right at the end. What have you got to lose? Well, I, yeah, especially because I, I like the history of TV a lot and I like shows that almost happened. Mm -hmm. And there's kind of a trope of shows that were way too dark to exist, oh, you know? Like, and if, if they had done that with Scrubs, it would be one of these where it was like, oh, it was only on for like one minute because yeah. it was too dark for, for the network and they pulled the plug. Yeah, yeah, what an interesting experiment. Yeah, probably would have had a critical respect, but not popular. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a like there's one um it's called it's called A Minute with Stan Hooper. Never heard of it. And that. it was going to be a sitcom built around Norm Macdonald where he does like the news and stuff, but they at the end of the first season they were going to have the character of his wife killed by a drifter. <laughs> was the plan killed by a drifter is just so inherently dark because it, it's totally random yeah 
it has nothing to do with what they're doing in their own life. Right. No build up. It just happens. Yeah. And yeah. a drifter is so scary. That's still such a vague term. Anything, anyone could theoretically be a drifter, but you know what it is. It's a guy in a like mottled fedora and like a raincoat, <laughs> just a hobo of some kind killed by a drifter. The show didn't air enough of its first season to get to that point, but so it's this legend of, like, we could have had the darkest sitcom ever, but it only lived for a little while, you know? And we almost had a pop culture world where Scrubs was that instead of this very delightful show, you know? That's like, have you ever followed the story of of, um, Kevin Can Wait and his wife on that show? Uh, No. She's, That's the new Kevin James sitcom? Yeah. Right? yeah. So the first season, the the wife is played by Aaron Hayes, who's a friend of mine. And she's oh, yeah, just, she's great. you know. Yeah, Children's prob- Hospital yeah. and, and other shows, yeah. And was given pretty short shrift on that show in terms of just being the setup to the jokes. Just the mom there, you know. Yeah. But she's such a brilliantly comedic, wonderful actress. Anyway, for whatever reason, she was coming back for season two and then last minute was told, nope. You're not coming back because Leia Remini had guested on the last episode of season one or something like that. And they thought, oh, we're going to bring her back as his former cop partner. Mm-hmm. And so they just like briefly mentioned in season two that the mom died of cancer. What? And they never really fully explain <laughs> it. And so I, you have to Google this, but someone was writing an article every episode of the season two series of shows saying, like, where's the mom? Like, why aren't they dealing with it? They still haven't dealt with it in real life. You know, she just basically disappeared. Yeah. And it became this whole thing of like, what happened to whoever the character's name was? And it was this funny tracking of how they never dealt with it. The only time they really did was that Kevin James character's brother was going to like a grief counseling thing for having lost someone, but only to hit on women there. So they used it just (laughs) as a plot device, not to acknowledge the fact that they booted her it was so strange that is crazy yeah was it Leia Remini that she's uh the actor who was Kevin James's wife on King of Queens that's correct yeah so they were like harkening back for those ratings or chemistry or something I don't know I assume the show's like pretty lighthearted and friendly most of the time and then they just did this his wife died of cancer don't worry about it yeah. To do like a, a business driven casting thing? I guess <laughs> it's just insane. like if you're going to get rid of a character and not acknowledge it, there's lighter ways to do it that don't ask for so many answers. You could just. Yeah. She got a job in another town or something. Yes, or, or like, yeah. Or she divorced him even, or who knows what. No one has to die. <laughs> no, especially from cancer. And well, and TV is so rich for all this stuff too, because it's like they're making so many episodes all the time of so many shows. Like there's just so many ways it can flip. I can be the whole. Yeah. Another TV thing we could do. Shout out to my friend David Bell uh, for picking this out, and and I checked, and it's true. Do you ever watch Westworld? Like the current Westworld. I show? watched the first season. Yeah. So that's that's our that's our Westworld right now, right? Mm-hmm. So Arnold Schwarzenegger. In like 2002. I remember this. He was going to remake okay. it, right? The movie, right? Yeah. He he signed on to do a new Westworld movie. As the like Ewell Brenner part, right? Exactly. Yeah. And it only didn't happen because the most unlikely thing in the world happened and he became the governor of I California. Remember. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. they uh, There's a Variety article from 2002 where Arnold's giving a quote about like, I absolutely loved the original movie and I've wanted to make it for years and I, I can't wait to do it. It's going to be mm-hmm. great. And that's probably our Westworld if he does it. Like they probably don't also do this TV show. No, you're probably right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I know that's the interesting thing is that 
it's not what was made sometimes, it's what wasn't made that would have precluded other things from being made. And that could have been good or bad. Right, yeah. yeah. Like maybe if Superman Returns wasn't made, there would have been a greater period of time between where someone came back at the right moment in the right way. I don't think it was going to be that Tim Burton version with Nicolas Cage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but who knows? Yeah. That's a whole thing yeah, in I, itself. Well, and I, I like Superman. I, I, I like that too. character a Me lot. too. And Superman Returns, it was that Brian Singer movie mm-hmm. where they had Brandon Routh as Superman. And it was like a really, really, it was really a throwback. It yeah. was like, we're mm-hmm. doing more Richard Donner movies yeah. and here we go. And I was like pretty into that. Me too. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it. I think, it, again, it kind of falls apart by the end, but I enjoy it more than the newer ones. That's for sure. Oh, yeah, where he, where he cries all the time? Yeah, yeah. it's not great. <laughs> I suppose you're right. Well, also looking at, uh, since we were talking about Kevin James, the movie, oh, yes. I Now Pronounce You Chuck and Larry. Yeah. Had, had you heard of this before? Uh-huh. We were, uh-huh. um, oh, th- this thing? <clears throat> yeah, the, no. the thing about it. No, yeah. huh? uh, I learned about it from, it's a New York Magazine article about a script called Flamers. And the script was by Barry Fanaro, who wrote Kingpin. And then it was rewritten by Alexander Payne and Jim Taylor, who did Sideways and About Schmidt and a lot of, like, very thoughtful movies, uh-huh. right? Like, there, there's some comedy to them, but there's real emotion. You yeah. Know? And it's the exact premise of the movie I Now Pronounce You Chuck and Larry, which is where Adam Sandler and Kevin James pretend to be gay to get, like, partner benefits. Mm-hmm. But just, like, a really thoughtful, good version of that premise. Yeah. <laughs> Am- amazing what that would have been. Yeah, I would have loved to have seen that. I didn't see I Now Pronounce You Chuck and Larry, but I feel like I can imagine it. <laughs> yeah, I, I've seen clips and looked into it, and it includes, like, uh, Rob Schneider in Yellowface at one point. Uh, and a lot of, like, there's a scene where Jessica Biel's uh, boobs just get held. Yes. Uh, I, like, oh, he's that was gay. In the trailer. How he care? Yes, you know? that was, I remember right. that. <laughs> and that, that was, was in a trailer the whole country saw? Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> Uh, so we got that very slapsticky movie, and mm-hmm. then I couldn't get, I couldn't find the script. But like the movie Sideways style version of that premise is like super thoughtful about these guys pretend to do this thing, and then they also from there they like actually start exploring male intimacy as friends, you right? Know? And like whether they can be friends. It apparently ends in in them kissing in a way that is like emotionally valid and like positive, and and like oh they they really care about each other more. I'm so, uh, oh, that probably would have been so good. It reminds me of the the movie Partners. Do you know that movie with Ryan O'Neill and John Hurt? And no, I am sure that it has not aged well because I'm sure it has a ton of homophobic humor in it. But the concept was that Ryan O'Neill was a like real straight, good looking cop, and there's been like a murder in the gay scene, and so he has to partner up with John Hurt, who's very gay. And they have to kind of go into that world. Mm-hmm. And it's like a lot of comedy ensues from it. But I, I oh. think like John Hurt gets hurt or shot at the end and Ryan O'Neill like really cares for him by the end, you know. So it was a like I think clumsy way of handling that same thing in a different time that probably didn't treat it that well. But it also came out around the same time as Cruisin' with Al Pacino, where he infiltrates the dark gay underbelly of New York. There's a great oh, article yeah. about this. I forget. Is it Birth Movies Death? Someone wrote a really good article comparing the two and how Well we'll footnote it, yeah. Okay, yeah. 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 But it's an interesting way to look at that. And That's I'm amazing. sure Alexander Payne would have handled that. Very well. I feel like big pop culture has had a hard time 
handling the idea of gay people basically forever. Like it's yeah. just starting to get good at it yeah. in some corners. And and the idea of I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry being a huge step forward in that when it like because it was years ago. Like it could right. have been a landmark film for like yeah. stories about the idea of people being gay. Right. And we came close. Like even Adam Sandler even does serious acting. And he just chose not to with this movie, <laughs> you know, like he could have, there's yeah. nothing stopping him. He certainly could have. Yeah. Yeah. And, and imagine too, <laughs> if you had like a gay actor playing one of these straight men, like the fact that it has to be kind of one of these like bro comedians playing. That, oh, right. You know, yeah. like, I don't know. That's something you don't see often enough either. It seems like gay characters should be well represented by gay actors, but you don't often get enough gay actors playing straight people unless it's like kind of understood you know that they're closeted or something like that you know there's that whole sub narrative for people in the know of like oh the actor cast is this is yes. one uh sexuality yeah and like a Paul playing Lind. a different thing yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. and Adam Sandler could have helped could have done it yeah, <laughs> yeah. We got a couple more things. One of them is Mystery Science Theater 3000, mm-hmm. which uh, there's a cracked article, Eight Hilariously WTF Backstories Behind Your Favorite Shows by Jam McNabb. And there's an Elton John album, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Uh-huh. Uh, do you know it? Yeah. I, know. I know the song especially, yeah. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. And apparently the liner notes to the album, there was one tiny illustration in there where it was – two people's heads silhouetted in front of a movie screen. That's right, that's right. Yeah. And Joel Hodgson, the comedian and writer, saw that album art because he was just looking at it real close for some reason and said like, oh, you could do a show where the format is, it's like silhouettes of heads and then you put it in talking. And then and then we got Mystery Science Theater 3000. Isn't that crazy? That, that <laughs> whole thing came from a visual idea, not not what it would become comedically. Right, because I feel like people know that it's it's such a landmark thing of riff tracksing a movie, yeah. of like watching a, a strange old movie and making fun of it has yeah. become like a, a pretty pretty important genre of comedy. And, and you would uh, think that would be the first thing he thought of, right? Not, yeah, yeah. That's that's I love when things like that are inspired by something indirectly. You know. Yeah, it's amazing to me too that we almost probably didn't get the show because like who who is closely examining. Uh, album art that often, you know, like it's a lesson learned. Get out your albums. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and then, uh, there's another one here, um, uh, about Rick and Morty. Cause I, I remember, uh, well, how long have you lived in LA uh, or, or the area? I was born and raised here. Oh, oh, great. Long time. Yeah. Yeah. Having been transplanted here, I feel like when I got here, I suddenly started discovering like, oh, these are institutions of like comedy in town, you Uh know, like things that, you could know about elsewhere, but they're sort of specific local things. And Channel 101 is such a fun thing uh, where people like kind of make homemade pilots. Yeah, and that's where I got my start, basically. Oh, really? Yeah, in the I'd, early days prior to it be co- being called Channel 101 and then as it transitioned into Channel 101. And uh, I think it was a relatively small world back then. It was at this place called Toy on Vine before it moved to Cinema Space. Oh. And it was this just wonderful world of all that stuff and yeah i was deep in that i don't know that much about it it's like start like uh, what was it like making stuff there what were you making oh god everybody was in everybody's thing so um jeremy carter and i who do super ego started by doing i had done one called buckle up which was kind of like a dukes of hazard 
meet Sid and Marty Croft thing. And then Jeremy and I did something called Ultra Force, which was a riff on Mega Force. And that was something we would get, it would get voted back. But it was so, as usual, like I, I worked on it too hard and put too much into it that I couldn't sustain the production values of it. It was costing us money. So we kill, killed the characters off so that the show <laughs> would get canceled. Um, but we would do a lot like uh, I was in Dan Harmon's, one of his first shows called Laser Fart. I played proudest character on my resume, Robot Dick. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've seen Laser Fart. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I was like, imagine Dr. Octopus, but with one appendage. It was, it's, Yeah. Is your character Robot Dick, right? Yes. Not because laser fart, isn't it? He shoots lasers out of his butt. Exactly. When he farts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. Yeah, because that that whole series, it's it's people making homemade pilots, and like you say, you're paying for them yourself. Yeah. Right? Like, to, as far as I know, everybody just did it out of pocket because they love it, and yes. then the audience votes for what makes more episodes. A lot of them riff on pop culture in some way, like existing stuff. Yeah. Did you see, were you like there for House of Cosby? I was, yeah, <laughs> yeah, very much. And it was amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it was truly wonderful. And that yeah. was when it was really taken off at Cinemaspace, if I remember correctly. <laughs> and that one just continually brought the house down. And that, yeah, Justin Roiland. Yeah, so Justin Roiland, he makes this show, House of Cosby's, which, and this this was at a time when... Like, I didn't know, and I think most people didn't know about the, the horrible things he was doing to no, people. No, certainly not. Yeah. Uh, so the premise is that it's basically that Bill Cosby is an impression that is fun. Like it's a, yeah. cause, And it's a show where a guy keeps cloning Cosby's in his house, and it's a big science fiction show. It's Bill Cosby basically because it's just a funny voice to do. Yeah. Like, he keeps saying Theo and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. So apparently he, Justin Rowland, made that show, and then... Were you guys as a community aware that he got a cease and desist and that was why he had to stop? I, I believe so, yes. Yeah. I remember that being the talk of the community because there were message boards and then, of course, we'd all meet up every month for the screening. But we were so much in each other's films that you – yeah, it really was like – almost like a high school class or something, you know? That's so cool. And we'll also, we'll footnote, you can watch both of these shows. Uh, so House of Cosby's is out there, and he had to stop because he got some kind of cease and desist. They said, your show where there are, I believe, over 100 Cosby clones, <laughs> including one who is like Satan and one who's a lady that gets pregnant, and, and uh, uh, you have to stop because you don't own Bill Cosby. You can't do that. And from what I read, Justin Roiland found it funny yeah. that he could get a cease and desist and decided to try to get another cease and desist for another thing. And so he made a pilot called Doc and Marty. Marty spelled M-H-A-R-T-I, where he wanted Universal to tell him to stop doing a takeoff on Back to the Future, oh, wow. where Marty keeps licking Doc's balls. And that's <laughs> the mechanic of the time travel and, and how everything works. And we'll we'll link it. If you go watch it, you'll be like, oh, wow, it's it's Rick and Morty. It's, yeah. the, it's their voices and the basic character animation. Right. Yeah. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> but we, I feel like we don't get that show if the guy making it doesn't make a really weird Cosby show and like getting legal threats. Yes. Like, that's a really, really specific timeline we're on. That is, you know, <laughs> in that multiple universe theory, that is one, only one of them. That only happens right, we're, once. We're it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Speaking of Channel 101, because that's a group of people in Los Angeles, I feel like maybe one of the most exciting alternate pop culture things is that uh, the, the center of American filmmaking was almost New Jersey. 
Yeah, like we came close historically. That. All of these things could have been happening in like North Jersey instead. Uh, they they shoot some things in New York, but it could have been the mecca of it, yeah. which is crazy to me. Really crazy too, because when you think just weather wise, it would limit so much of what they could do unless it was all soundstage stuff. Yeah, that ended up that ended up being a part of why they moved because uh, one of the reasons it started there uh, was Thomas Edison. He he just invented a lot of the gear, you know, uh-huh. and then he set up a movie studio in 1893 in the town of Fort Lee, New Jersey. And I don't know the area well, but apparently it has like waterfalls and ah. uh, plains and uh, enough of a geographic variety that people were like, we can shoot anything here. Yeah. My God. And so then by uh, 1918, there were 11 different studios operating there, making hundreds of movies all the time. And then eventually people realized there's basically free land with perfect weather in California. And also Thomas Edison will have a harder time collecting money from us Uh, because he was just aggressively trying to monetize every patent he had. Oh, my God. And it was just harder to do if people were in California. Wow. And so he kind of of started and ended the New Jersey Hollywood. (laughs) I feel like you can see that happen because in in the Marx Brothers movies, I'm such a big fan of the Marx Brothers movies, but the first three were shot in New York. And they're so, all, all of it takes place indoor. But when they move to LA, you really see it is they start shooting outside a lot. And I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Yeah. I guess what, like duck soup and things they're in woods sometimes. And, and yeah, yeah. I can't remember if duck soup was East coast or not, but when you get into the MGM years where like day at the races, which I think was shot at Santa Anita racetrack here in Southern California and a few of the other ones, they're just less claustrophobic. Because also, yeah. I'm sure even if they did soundstage stuff, the soundstages were bigger out here, you know? From what I know, the, the population went way up real fast in L.A., once, uh-huh. especially once they started coming. But initially, uh, somebody like Carl Lemley, who I think started Universal, could just buy acres and acres and acres and then put a bunch of right. stages on it. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And New Jersey, it's trickier. There's, It's like colonial, you know? You yes, can't, like, I know. It's yeah. filled in. Yeah, yeah. that's true. <laughs> But yeah, and also Thomas Edison. Like, I I love any kind of historical thing where somebody was a jerk, and that's why I know the world moved. I know, know? yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> wow. And he was like, he just wanted more money, and so everybody was like, I'm moving across the country. Well, there you go. <laughs> Folks, that is the episode for this week. My thanks to Matt Gorley for being on board for a lot of what ifs and yes ands and here's counterfactuals. He's the greatest. And in our footnotes, you'll find all kinds of sources for the pop culture that we talked about today. Also, many, many Matt Gorley podcasting ventures. They're great. Check them out. Two highlights that uh, I haven't mentioned yet. One of them is that there's a whole second season of the Andy Daly Podcast Pilot Project. It's out now. It's blowing minds. Let yours be one of them. It's a podcast where every episode, it's a whole new comedy series created by Andy Daly and Matt Gorley and some fellow incredible improvisers. Come for the the Dalton Wilcox podcast. There are too many monsters. He's taking care of them. And the other show I want to touch on, Matt is producing. It's a, a new podcast, and it's with an up-and-coming unknown comedian named uh, Conan O'Brien. Nope, Conan O'Brien, that's it. And it's called Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. It's a podcast where you get to hear Conan be everything you want him to be. And I think you'll be pretty excited about that if you, like me, think Conan is in the same pantheon as Letterman and the Smothers Brothers and Jack Benny. So check that out. 
one other thing to check out. Uh, it's kind of exciting news. We have our next LA live episode of the Cracked Podcast lined up. It's going to be February 23rd. That is a Saturday at 9 p.m. And I don't know how closely you track the calendar of events in the world and what's going on, but uh, that is right before the Oscars. And so that live show is going to be all about the Oscars and what they could be and, uh, you know, some other fun things there. It's going to be great. No ticket link yet, but mark your calendars for 9 p.m. February 23rd of 2019, which is a wild year to hear myself say. I'm not used to it yet. Don't know if I will be. Here's another wild thing. Our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. This episode was engineered by Sam Kiefer and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media, a space that helps a lot of the what-ifs we wish for in pop culture come into actual being. And isn't that great? You'll find my social media, my Twitter account, at Alex Schmitty. My Instagram is at Alex Schmitzagram, and I'm on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. And I'm happy to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcasts. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.